The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to Business is Boring. Tip Top Ice Cream, DB Breweries, Griffins, Lewis Road Creamery, Comvita, Cleanery. All of these loved local brands have one thing in common, Nicola O'Rourke, who's been part of making them happen. Nicola's one of the most influential experts in FMCG, fast-moving consumer goods, launching products, scaling, brand building, and bringing operational excellence. She became known to many as the general manager at Lewis Road Creamery, who led their expansion into the US and Asia and to a brilliant exit. She's also served in governance and advisory to brands like Convita, New Zealand Rugby, and Pals, and as a founding partner in Founders Advisory, a company helping great local brands with capital and expertise as they scale and grow. I meet a lot of companies and so many of the ones that are really smashing it have Nicola in there helping. So it's a big pleasure to have one of the great operators in the scene join us today to chat products, brands and international growth. Tenakwe, nice to see you. Kia ora, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. <laughs> Hey, so take us back to um, what got you into the space in the first place. What got you interested in marketing and building products? I think like all experiences in life, you're not really sure where you're meant to be until you fail at something. And for me, I wanted desperately to be all my life a physio to the All Blacks. I was That was going to be my calling. I was very sporty at school. Went to Otago Uni, into pre-med, walked into my first couple of labs where um, we were doing um, cadaver work on muscles and I swiftly fainted on the floor, flat out. So maybe decided that that dream wasn't quite for me. That's a lot on your first day <laughs> at pre Yeah, first week. I thought, no, I'll give for the second lab a go. No, same, same outcome. So uh, then ended up transferring those papers into consumer food science and did a marketing degree at the same time. And it was actually at that point that I really started to get excited about the opportunity to kind of be that intersection between brand, product, food. And that was a really unusual degree in those days. There was only about, I think we had 20 or 25 of us in our cohort in the consumer food science. And it was really, there's just really something special about linking that emotional and functional benefit of what I was studying at the time with food into kind of brand and marketing. And that's when I got I got hooked, really. Yeah, and probably not so many cadavers unless things are going really wrong. No, I wasn't fainting quite so much in my consumer food science labs. Yeah, and what kind of places did you go into? Because, yeah, that little kind of roll call of, um, you, you know, real household brands, right? Tip Top, DB, Griffins. Yeah, I was. I remember actually applying for a graduate role at um, L'Oreal and then one at Tip Top and one at New Zealand Post. And... I knew the one I wanted, you know, I knew it was tip top because I was just thoroughly enjoying this 
you know, consumer food science and thinking about innovation and how we experience food differently and how we wrap that up in a real brand experience. And so, you know, I was really sort of crossing my fingers and, and I was lucky enough to get it and I got the opportunity to go into, you know, an amazing organisation that was pumping out innovation at a rapid rate of knots, gave you significant freedom to come up with really interesting and new ideas. And it was really at that point when I arrived at Tip Top Ice Cream that I kind of fell into this really inter- interesting intersection between product development, innovation, brand, consumer uh, trends and needs, and sitting really on the side of, on Tip Top Corner at Mount Wellington, a, a, a huge uh, factory and facility. So really got to experience some of the challenges of of making a huge set of stainless steel, be able to be nimble and and uh, look for different opportunities. And so from Tip Top, I then um, went to Debbie Breweries and uh, worked on the Export Gold brand yeah, there. Different, different stainless steel. Yeah, different stainless steel. And uh, Export Gold and Seoul and did some exciting stuff on the Thirst Fighter campaign for those who remember that, show my age. And I think one of the first things I did there was get my HT licence to drive that big Thirst Fighter Bedford truck around and there's a few breakdowns in the Coromandel heading to festivals that, that maybe we won't repeat. But um, And I think what, what those two businesses did incredibly well is focused really heavily on brand and then kind of connecting in the product experience to that and giving you very, very big structured kind of organisational um, development around path to innovation and how to commercialise products. And Yeah, because like you've got to have all of the things working together, right? You've got to have um, a great product because if people don't want to actually repeat purchase, then it doesn't matter Moment how... Moment of truth does yeah. not exist <laughs> if you've not got a great product. If you've done all the great um, marketing <laughs> and branding and you understand your community and your people and you've delivered them something that seems appealing, but if they don't like it, they'll never buy it again and then you're absolutely cooked, right? So all of those elements together. And that's kind of quite forward thinking to be able to control all those elements or, you know, have all those elements uh, controlled by the same group, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's I, th- I think we, we sort of have a saying that you can't uh, brand or sell a product until you really know how to make a product. And I really enjoyed in the kind of early 10 to 15 years of my career working in uh, large organisations that really had a long supply chain, a really structured set of manufacturing assets, because you you did you could you could walk out and see how the products made, and there's something really special about that. The people behind it, you know, the the art and the science, depending on what type of product you're making, and then all the way back into you know the brewing facility and or you know the farms that are supplying the milk for the ice cream or the potatoes for Eater at Griffins. You really get to deeply immerse yourself in the story of it, and that is really, really special. There's just as we move into a very nimble co-manufacturing relationship for a lot of new brands, it's actually really special to find opportunities where you can connect up the entire process. And kind of, you know, something I love is your product is your brand, and you know, lots of people think of brand as maybe the wrapping around the edges or the colours or the you know promotional bits that can swap in and out. 
But if 95% of the experience you have with the product is the product, your product is the brand, right? And the example I always think of is um, the cream egg where, you know, the cream egg's a terrible product and had great advertising. But, you know, you couldn't make kind of like sweet mucus with foil that stuck to your fingers and, you know, <laughs> it's a terrible... The unwrapping experience has got a little to be desired. It's, it's an awful thing. You know, it's inedible. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, the advertising kind of like made people love it. But you couldn't do that today, I don't think. No. And that, you know, consumers have been incredibly blessed with floods of innovation hitting the market. And so what I love about the FMCG industry is it's called fast-moving consumer goods for a reason because you have to be so up to speed with what's happening in needs and trends and how people are consuming things differently and what occasions and what environments. And the brilliant thing about product marketing, so having something physical, is that you have to work so much harder because you don't know how that product's been going to be consumed in a certain moment, in a certain occasion. It could differ across all sorts of different experiences. So you've you've got to work so hard to be as up to speed with that and stay as close to your consumers as possible because because things are changing at such a rapid rate of knots. Yeah, and tell us about Griffins. Is that's a really interesting? A lot of these things also they balance, like you say, staying up to date with needs and trends and, and, and changes, but also being heritage brands and having kind of, you know, an, a connection or, you know, a place in people's hearts and pantries, you know, what kind of stuff did you get up to at, at Griffin's and moving into kind of the operational side as well? Hey? Yeah, yeah. At Griffin's, I was running the eater business. So Griffin's owned eater chips and snacks and nice and natural and obviously the beautiful, um, delightful Griffin's biscuits that we've all grown up with. So I think the the exciting thing about Griffins and, and what what was really interesting is that because they had such a diverse mix of product groups, we got to do, you know, you've got these big, huge segments in the supermarket, right? Griffins, biscuits, chips, nuts. You know, these are huge kind of supermarket pantry staples. And so when you're in a really mature segment, innovation can look quite different. It doesn't need to be significantly disruptive to totally change and grow a segment. Sometimes it can just be one step to the right. It might be a slightly different pack oh, format. Bals- balsamic vinegar yeah, instead imagine, of vinegar. Yeah. Imagine, <laughs> raging. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> International flavours. Mm. Or how you cut the chip. You know, there's really, there's, there's actually lots of different ways to innovate that actually are keeping consumers interested in a segment, um, you know, teasing out how far you can stretch, th- stretch things. And the, the great thing about Griffins is, you know, part of what they do is about surprise and delight. That is that is the segments in which they exist. So they pulled that all the way through the brands and the innovation and the production programs. And it was, it was you just got quite a lot of freedom to go and um, play around with what is a category that people love, you know. It's a really, they're, they're beautiful categories that, Provide moments of you know delight yeah, for consumers. So it's people's little it's treat. Little I know happy ritual at the end of oh, the week. And they, they will crack eat, the chip pack. Yeah, they will like, eat salad all day to crack that chip pack. You yeah. know, you, you've got to really respect those moments for consumers and make sure that you show up with a product that's you know going to deliver everything you're saying it's going to deliver. Yeah, and also you know as you mentioned, like it goes back to the whole supply chain and real people making it in real facilities here. Like there's a real food value even in these confectionery items, right? Yeah, and what I always love telling people about chips is that they don't actually realise that the potatoes 
come out of the ground often within 24 hours of them going into a chip packet. You know, they are, you're processing significant tons of beautiful potatoes from the Pukekohe region out of that gorgeous volcanic soil up there. And they're they're cut and fried and put in a bag really fast. So they're actually uh, one of the fresher products that you can get on the market. So, you know, if you need anything to justify your snacking moment, <laughs> there, there it is. That's but, basically a whole food. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you, you we talk um, Lady Rosella and Rosetta and there's all mm. these different varieties of, of spuds and, I mean, we could talk about potatoes for, forever. But, yeah. <laughs> I, that, but I guess that's, that was part of my journey into mm. operations. I really wanted to um, spend time understanding how, you know, how the how the products are made, leader team, out there, which um, at the Wirree site was just a fabulous team at the time. We had 250 staff on site and were making the nice and natural bars there and and, and the chips and, and nuts on site. And, you know, it gives, it gives you a real appreciation for all of the human elements to producing something, not only kind of where it's grown, but that that middle craft stage where you're turning into something that, that consumers really enjoy. And what led you to a role at Lewis Road Creamery that kind of brought all of those elements together, right? Like, because you've launched hundreds of products and uh, you, you have worked with big retailers on ranging and, and, and growing distribution and then the operational elements of bringing everything together and operational excellence in the teams and then all, all together for, for Lewis Road Creamery. Yeah, Lewis Road, I think, was... So Peter Cullinane, who is a, a, a great friend of mine and still a business partner, he was running a assignment group at the time, a fabulous agency, and I was client side at Griffin. So we met, we met um, a couple of years before I went to Lewis Road, and um, you know, as any business goes through significant growth changes, they need different crew and different teams, and he was, they were starting to look at what they needed for the next phase of of their growth, uh, especially as they sort of looked to orient offshore. And I'll never forget the moment he rang me up and he said, "What are you doing?" And I said, "I'm standing." in a pile of oil with a high-vis vest and steel cap boots on. He said, that doesn't sound like you. <laughs> and I said, that is correct. He goes, why don't you come and come and do this fun journey with Lewis Road, with us at Lewis Road? And I said, it couldn't have been a better time. <laughs> couldn't have been a better. I mean, Griffin's had, we'd got it to the point where we um, had sold it, it, had, it got sold to URC, a fabulous company. And so it was actually, it's just one of those beautiful serendipitous moments where it was just perfect timing and and I couldn't have, you know, I couldn't have picked A, a better organisation, but B, a better team to to go and join and work with. And so it was after the big um, wave of the Whitaker's Chocolate Milk collab that kind of made it the most famous uh, dairy-related thing in the country. But the thing is, that was just the beginning of its actual value and growth as a business, hey, is what you did was get it into America and across Asia. Yeah, so we had a... You know, when I joined it, it, it was, it, we were just starting to grow up as a business, I would say. We, we, we had, um, you know, we'd done some amazing things. The team had done some amazing collaborations. Chocolate milk got us on the map, even though butter and, and, and white milk had been selling for a couple of years. And then, you know, really it was about going, okay, so where is the business at and where do we want to take it? And, you know, there was a real desire to move to exit in a, in a period of time and, we actually knew that this was a business that deserved to be offshore at the same time. 
um, it's very hard to scale a business that has a 15-day shelf life product range. <laughs> so, yeah. wow. you know, it, the first task really was to sit down and go, okay, if we if we are deliberately going to do this, where are we going to play and how are we going to win? Like, what are the what are the segments? Where are the consumer needs and what markets where we can viably scale this business without it completely unraveling uh, what we're doing in New Zealand and we don't want to be air freighting fresh milk around the world. I mean, that's no, just not going to happen. No, so the weight of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and and like the fact that New Zealand, and this goes back to you know the founding of it, the fact that New Zealand, a country so associated with dairy, didn't have a you know widespread premium um, butter, is so bananas. And that we're importing Lurpak. <laughs> like the fact there was the opportunity, uh, but then it's so cool that you you know in a, in a industry that we export so much bulk commodity that you were able to, for the first time, get a premium butter on the shelves of the best retailers in the world. Yeah, and the it's, you know, we've got, this this country has some of the most beautiful, untoiled agricultural soil in the world. We're very young in the scheme of the world and farming our soil. So we've got, in my view, sort of an unfair advantage in the produce from this country. It is, you know, we have just some of the highest quality um, food, fruit, agribusiness that comes out of this country, but we're not great at um, necessarily communicating that. And um, obviously Peter was reaching for a lure pack and decided that that is madness. We really should be sort of uh, having a premium brand, but actually that, that doesn't mean a lot on the world stage. So we had to look really carefully about well, where are you know, where is there a deep appreciation for grass-fed dairy in what markets? And how do we connect that story with consumers in those markets? And, you know, we were looking at the US market and going, well, grass-fed butter is, you know, roughly now a $400 million segment as part of a multi-billion dollar segment in butter. Um, Kerry Gold were doing a, had done a great job in kind of establishing themselves as a grass-fed Irish butter. But there was more opportunity in that market. And, so, you know, we said, well, where do we want to be in the US and how do we want to get there and what is our, how do we show up? Like, what is our proposition? And, you know, that <laughs> I like to kind of go, well, anyone can take on the US, but let's find the consumers that are going to be, you know, it's easiest and cheapest to meet consumers where they are. So we said, well, who's putting the most butter in their mouths in the US and in what state is that? It was Texas. Yeah, good <laughs> on so, Texas. Uh, great, yeah. brilliant, why not? And then who is kind of least least involved in the plant-based movement? Texas and the Midwest. Cool. Okay. And then where is the coolest retailer that we want to be in and who's going to kind of be leading that natural channel strategy? And, you know, Whole Foods is based in Austin, uh, Texas. So we said, let's start in Texas. Let's just go there. You know, it's like, what, north of 26 million people. Let's start there. That's a, that's a good start. So... We actually um, got into Central Market, which is a, a very small 15-store chain Yeah, there. but like the bougiest, the bougiest. Uh, retails. Like, oh, like I the, mean, they I do s- retail well. I sculptures, you know, like yeah. the place is amazing. Oh, and you can wander around with a sommelier. I mean, <laughs> like, honestly, you walk in, you're like, I'm going to do my grocery shopping today. Mr. Sommelier, can you walk around with me? What should I match with this? And he's giving you wine while you're wandering around. Oh, for a product nerd, that it's place was more exciting nerd. than visiting Disneyland. I know, okay, yeah. I know, it is, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, and they, you know, Whole Foods, they're a bit, of, a bit like Erewhon on the, on the West Coast. They, Whole Foods looked to them a bit of a challenger um, 
uh, retailer. So, you know, we wanted to get on shelf there and get noticed and, and really test and learn the proposition. So I stood in those central market stores and sampled butter for probably over 50 or 60 hours just getting feedback. And it's pretty humbling. You know, you just think people know about New Zealand and they care about the story and and half of them have never been and don't know where we are and just, but just know they love it. Like this, they just sort of viscerally love the country. They just don't know why. So we, you know, we, we decided on butter into the US for multiple reasons and then um, flavoured milk actually into into China. Yeah, wow. That's so interesting. So a completely different product strategy to get that growth into, into China. Yeah, so the China was... Um, China is an amazing market. They are the speed and... Um, sophistication of their consumers is unparalleled and you have to work so hard to keep up with the evolving Chinese consumer. They are especially kind of that younger sort of Gen X. They are amazing. And so we, you know, we spent a lot of time in market sort of understanding some of the needs of these probably 25 to 30-year-old women, female office workers. And we realised there was a real need sort of at that three o'clock moment for it's sort of a, a little treat, but not too much of a treat. And we did a huge amount of work around the kind of prior go-to-market research and understanding, but ended up positioning um, a beautiful flavoured milk range uh, for that consumer. And we actually teamed up with the Shanghai Fashion University and did a collaboration around the silkiness of milk. And his students uh, lead, uh, going into Fashion Week in Shanghai, they had to do a design inspired by silk and milk. And, and walk the catwalk with their designs, and then we had kind of a bit of a um, a fashion collaboration with them to launch. And I mean, that was just they just are so creative up there. It's amazing how they'll allow you to do these fabulous kind of connections across different consumer groups and activations. It's so much fun. Yeah, like and it. properly luxury. And part of the you know, success, I mean, multi-million dollar orders into these places, you know, really changing the scale of the company. And then, as you'd mentioned before, the exit to a big farming player. What's that process like when you're kind of, you know, managing towards or planning to be getting a business into shape to meet those uh, meet those goals to be able to exit? Yeah, the um, Lewis Strobe is incredibly blessed. I mean, Southern Pastures, who actually, it was a staged exit, so they had bought in and then had options to acquire the rest. And they, we couldn't have had a better a better buyer. I mean, they were, they own 20 farms in New Zealand, huge farms that, that um, are split across the North and the South Island and have a very strong ethos to a 10-star standard, which is really pioneering kind of the regenerative farming, which is huge in the US because um, they're trying to fix all the things they've done wrong, you know, Southern Pastures going, well, let's just not get ourselves in that position in the first place and and do things right from the start. And they, you know, that really shows up in the quality of the milk and the quality of the products. And so they were really looking for that entire paddock to plate, um, you know, Lewis Road to fill the brand story for them whilst they, you know, had had somewhere to feed all of their beautiful milk. So I think for Lewis Road it was about making sure that we understood, you know, what that new owner and shareholder's vision and goal was for the business and, you know, we had to make some decisions around what markets that we were going to aid the most value. And, you know, that there's a, they call it the white wall of milk, but there's a lot of milk that comes mm-hmm. out of farms in New Zealand. And so it's complex in terms of how you turn that into products 
across the um, supply chain that are going to last and not kind of expire within seven days. And so you've got, you're kind of looking for those product market fits where you've got value add that you can take. Um, you can take that product and sell it into a market that's going to add, you know, the 10-star um, standard value to it. So we worked really closely with them when they first got involved in the business to make sure that um, the strategy that we had already put in place was absolutely aligned to where they saw continued value in the business growth. And they were just an exceptional, you know, an exceptional fit. Because hope you, there's so many options where we mm. could have ended up, but what a great one for Lewis Road. Yeah, what a great story and what a great exit. And we'll be back in a moment to talk backing brands, building businesses and New Zealand Inc. Spark is proud to partner with the Sustainable Business Network and the Climate Action Toolbox. The free Climate Action Toolbox can provide you with simple step-by-step guides to measure and reduce your emissions. Help lead the way to a low-carbon future for New Zealand. Visit sparklab.co.nz forward slash sustainability to find out more. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Welcome back to Business is Boring, where we're with Nicola O'Rourke of Founders Advisory. So tell us, what are you up to with Founders Advisory? Because it's kind of like a super team uh, of uh, business backers, right? <laughs> yeah, we, um, Peter and I, after um, Lewis Road, sort of said, hey, we love this. We and, and there's, you know, I've always deeply had a passion for seeing New Zealand food and beverage um, scale and grow on the world stage. I think we we bat well above our average currently, and I think we've got huge opportunity. And Peter's very similar. And so we, you know, we were like, well, why don't we, why don't we do something about it? Why don't we get together and see how we can best support um, kind of the future brands and and products that are growing globally? And then um, we got connected with Michael Stiasny, who is an, an a, you know an amazing an amazing kind of finance and and kind of structural brain and, you know, we felt like that was a good mix. But actually we just wanted to have some fun and get involved with businesses and, and actually just stimulate and grow an industry. And there was a real need for it as we started sort of looking around. And so, we, but we wanted we wanted a seat at the table, you know, where, where we got energy is by that first, you know, the first five years or even kind of the first time that you are a startup in a new market, because often you're a big business in New Zealand, but you really behave like a startup in a new market, that's where the energy is. You know, that's where there's the excitement, where you're solving difficult problems, where the hustle's there and where we really wanted to be involved in kind of that, that almost accelerator phase of the business. So, you know, we we sort of said, well, okay, what are we going to do? We sort of create, build and grow. So let's, let's um, but let's put our money where our mouth is and make sure that we are bringing cash and capital. Because you know, FMCG businesses are capital intensive, they scale differently, they're slower often to scale. Um, and you've, you've got to sort of appreciate all of that when you're going into investing in that in that kind of model. And and so we said, well, what can we bring? We can bring we can bring capital to the table, but we can bring expertise and accelerating, you know, their, 
what might have been a five to ten year journey, let's pull it back to a three to five or a five to seven so we can really get them into the market and scaling as fast as possible and work with some really fun people doing some fun stuff. And that bringing it forward a few years is the difference between a good life and a horrible life for a capital intensive business that's scraping by on invoice factoring or some awful horrible things, right? And it's such a gap in the market that you're, you're playing in, which is so valuable as it's so hard for consumer goods especially to get funding because everyone's got this VC model where, you know, they want 100 times returns and, you know, blah blah 90% margins and, you know, nonsense. Um, but, you know, there's a really different path for brands, right? Because if you do get onto the shelves of a really big retailer and you stick the landing and, you know, sell from the shelves and become, become a, a, a staple in people's lives, you're creating extraordinary long-term value, brand value. You can then extend and sell more things and, you, you, you know, in a way that other businesses don't have that thing. But the thing that I've observed that is so cool about what you bring as an organisation is you use not just your financial capital but your social capital and your networks to actually help people get on the shelves. Yeah, and it's... You know, the old saying goes, it's easy to get on shelf, it's hard to stay on shelf. And if you say that to a founder, I mean, they, they perceive their hardest part's getting on shelf, actually. And so, you know, what we're trying to do is think ahead of that and make sure that we're setting everything up as quickly as possible so that when they're on shelf, they're going to stay, they're on to the next one and the next one. But, you know, it's a the social capital in, in an industry where IP doesn't really exist. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got speed, relationships brand equity, but you're growing it, right? So it's it's early product market fit stuff. And you've got kind of social equity to a point. And you've you've, you've really, all you've got is to get there the fastest, connect with consumers the best, get them coming back, and then innovate and iterate as fast as possible. And so if if you can get access to that model and do it really quickly, then you can win. But it's, you know, when you've got um, new categories where you're trying to take consumers into a different behaviour or think differently or or slightly disrupt how they currently use things, you need more money mm-hmm. and you need to think a bit differently about how you do it. And so often we are working with founders up front to go, um, you know, how much of a leap is this from are we disrupting a big mature category where we're just making something look more valuable taste better, behave better, have a better experience, or actually are we asking consumers to take one or two steps to the right where something they've done forever, we're now asking them to do differently because how you capitalise that type of business and how you build that type of brand will look really different. And so some examples of those things, like you're involved in a bunch of great businesses, but maybe is compostic like a better behaving version of a cling wrap. People know how to use a cling wrap. While cleanery, you're actually asking people to do a completely different thing with their spray and white bottle, you know, use a concentrate and don't use a big old chemical company. Yeah, and I think you've always got to look at it through the lens of consumers are are now moving to an experience as part of the product. So so it doesn't matter uh, whether you use cling film before and now you're using composite cling film. It's still about the experience of using it. It needs to be frictionless. It needs to behave like I expect it to. It needs to you know, have the tension I need in that product. And so those are, they're not they are not easier, but the, the use of capital is different in those businesses because you've got to think about the category in which they exist. So if you are a sustainable cling film or rubbish bag and you are on the shelf right next to the normal ones and your price is 
on par, if not slightly more expensive, that's a that's low barriers to entry for a consumer. They can reach for your product. Your moment of truth is when they get it home and realise it behaves just as well as, if not better, than the um, plastic equivalent. That's a win. But if you've got a segment where you've got to communicate a lot of different things on shelf, it's 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 more challenging. You've got to think really differently about what the packaging looks like on shelf, how you're communicating that message, where are the layers of those conversations, the moment of truth. You've got to sweat a bit more because they might get it wrong. They don't know how to use it. You've got to, you've just got to wrap around that business a slightly different communication strategy and think a bit differently about how it shows up. And a lot of what you do is helping these companies get out of New Zealand and get to actual scale. Um, and they're all kind of New Zealand businesses. But a, a really interesting thing to me is that they all feel like a lot of the brands that you work with, they just feel like international brands. What's the role of the New Zealand bit of the story for, you know, fast-moving consumer goods that are battling, you know, big incumbents overseas? I get asked this question a lot and the answer is often disappointing and that mm. there's not much of a role, to be honest. <laughs> um, I... I, I you know, you've got to look at it in, in terms of the product. So in, in, in grass-fed butter, it plays a huge role. It's, it, we talk about the, you know, the soil quality and therefore the grass quality and, and what the cow's eating and how that shows up in the product and the product's yellow and not white. And so you are telling a, a, a very rich story about the difference of New Zealand soil versus international markets. Or, you know, our salmon and, and the type of clean water it's grown in and how that shows up in the type of product you have. But unless you can very easily do that for a consumer and they can see, taste, feel, experience that difference when they consume the product, it just New Zealand is, is not relevant. So what I would say, though, is New Zealand opens a significant amount of doors for us. We do, we get away with a lot in international markets that you, uh, that other markets do not. Uh, we have this quirky appeal for some reason. People... Um, People just sort of are a little bit endeared to us, but for whatever reason. So, you know, we can ask for a bit more. We can open doors that that maybe uh, aren't as easy to open typically. And it's, you've just got to think really carefully about about your why. why. Why is New Zealand important to your products? And does that show up in something a consumer would understand and connect with? And if the answer is no, then it's really just it's just your spiritual home. It's it's where you started. It's it's the it's the it's the fostering of the idea to start the business, but then you've got to look globally pretty quickly. Yeah. You work with a lot of companies uh, in the market here and overseas. What are you optimistic about at the moment? Oh, I'm always optimistic about CPG New Zealand on the world stage. I'm I'm very excited. I think in the next five years we're going to see some really big success stories. And I say five years because, you know, these things can take five, 10, 15 years, but, you know, I don't think, I think in the last 10 years we've really started to see some really cool stuff happen out of New Zealand on, on the world stage and I think in the next five to 10 we've got some we've got some more bubbling away, so I'm really optimistic about that. Um, and I just, I love the fact that the world's opening up again. We're going back to face-to-face -face conversations with consumers, with customers. There's just an energy in that that accelerates any opportunity for brands. So, I mean, I I just love that, love getting back out and travelling and seeing the markets and going to expos and getting, you know, getting the energy of kind of needs and trends and what's happening. 
One thing to quickly touch on is governance as well as, you know, you started out wanting to be a physio for the All Blacks, but then ended up being a director for New Zealand Rugby and, you know, working with a number of rugby teams, right? So that's really cool. Tell us about, you know, governance and the impact you can have there because, again, as an observer, I love the fact that as a marketing brand product and um, operational leader, you're in there on, on governance, which... I think is a massive lack in our boardrooms, especially in early stage companies. Yeah, and, you know, primarily governance is about value creation. You know, you are, you are there to look at how you are building value in this business uh, for all of the stakeholders, really, consumer all the way through to the shareholders. And so it is, you know, in in our industry, certainly in, in consumer packaged goods or FMCG that value you're creating is typically going to be often around the brand. And so how how can you be governing value creation in a, bit, in a branded consumer business if you haven't got that voice at the table? And so it is. It, I just think it's critical to kind of have that voice of customer, consumer, market orientation, wherever you're, you're growing, to, to stay really focused on that value creation. Um, and in, uh, certainly in FMCG anyway, it... It is moving so fast and being disrupted so quickly unless you have, you know, unless you have the voice of future and trend around the table to challenge the thinking of the organisation and, and bring some, you know, perspective to the table. It's, it's how else are you going to kind of build that value? So um, it, it is, I think you still need a, a significant amount of kind of commercial marketing experience and in, in, in building brand, but... It is. I, I'm seeing a huge shift, and certainly in this industry, anyway, to appreciating appreciating that a lot more in terms of the context of value creation. Yeah, and something you've done really strategically is be an advisory board member. As you don't want to join every board, that's an enormous <laughs> amount of responsibility, right? But to be kind of a formal advisory board, you can still have a governance role without all of the governance stuff. Or, or yeah. sorry, a governance. Uh, contribute to governance without being yeah. in governance. And it's it's probably more around what is the right age and stage for the organisation to have governance. So um, governance is always needed in the truest form in that it's holding the business to account to what it says it's going to do and build value and make sure that it's doing the right things along the way. But an advisory board often can be more hands-on. You are doing sprints with the organisation, helping kind of accelerate in areas of skill. And, and more often than not in that you know, probably under 10 to 20 million size business, they don't need to be tied up in significant governance. They need a good set of advisors around them to kind of accelerate them to the next phase of opportunity. And then at that point, you know, they actually should be rotating their advisory board. The skills they're going to need are different. So I think it's, I think it is critical that any business has some form of support around them that's going to accelerate them to their next phase of growth and really kind of stimulate that thinking and make sure that they're doing that well. Whether that's an actual board member or an advisory board really depends on where the organisation's at and how the structure might work. Love it. And as a final thought, what will success be for you and what will success be for the work you're doing at Founders Advisory? Oh, I think, I mean, I'm just so excited about these next sort of five years. So I think success is we see a whole number of organisations, actually, whether it's ones founders are working with um, or not, 
you know, make names on the global stage either, whether that's through um, building really big businesses that are acquired, whether that's building businesses that are going on to be our next half a billion dollar business over time. You know, that's, that is success for me that we're starting to see an industry really stimulated and holding its own on kind of being the next phase of growth for New Zealand export. Um, so, yeah, that's, I'm really excited about that. It's going to happen. We're just moments away. <laughs> yeah, love it. Well, love seeing it. And yeah, as, as I said in the intro, I keep running into things and I'm like, this is going really well. And then I have a look at it and I'm like, oh, because Nicola's in there. So yeah, love the work you're doing. And thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Kelda. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So thank you so much to Nicola, to you for listening, and for everyone who helps make this happen, like our producer, Samuel Robinson. Do follow Businesses Boring wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to rate and leave a review if you like what we do. Enoho ra. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Businesses Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Businesses Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited, and of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin Off Podcast Network.